Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about Daily Daf Differently, please visit jcastnetwork.org slash ddd. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to the Daily Daf Differently. I am Daniel Nevins, and we'll be studying this week Mitzachet Yoma, pages 7 through 13, Zayin Ad Yud Gimel. When it comes to public performances, mistakes inevitably occur. When those performances are the Avodah, the mandated rituals of sacrifice in the Temple in Jerusalem, do we say that the show must go on, or do we stop and even cancel the ritual performance until things can be done just right? And if we say that the show must go on, that the ritual must be performed even under non-ideal circumstances, what is its final status? Do we place an asterisk next to it, or rather, do we treat it as a perfect offering? This is one way to set the stage for our first daf, Yoma Zayin Amud Aleph. On the previous pages of Mesechet Yoma, we considered strategies to keep the high priest, the Kohen Gadol, ritually pure so that he could be prepared for Yom Kippur. This discussion eventually arrived at the dramatic scenario of an accidental case of corpse contamination, Tum'at Hamet. In general, if a living person comes into contact or even close proximity to a corpse, the living person becomes impure and may not enter the temple precincts or handle sanctified objects, animals, or foods. First, he must be purified through a seven-day process involving the ashes of the red heifer, the para aduma, and only then may he resume contact with the sancta or kodashim. Since the high priest, the Kohen Gadol, must be in a state of purity for Yom Kippur, and since we have learned in the Mishnah of the need to separate him from his wife for a week prior to the holiday, lest he become impure through accidental intimacy when she is menstruating, why not take further precautions and prevent him from coming into contact with anyone? After all, any visitor could suddenly die, and then the priest would be impure and incapable of performing the sacred service for Israel on Yom Kippur. Ravina explains that this scenario is most unlikely, and thus such extreme precautions are unnecessary. However, the sages have a second strategy for nullifying this concern. They know that for public sacrifices, in contrast to private ones, some rules about ritual impurity are relaxed. But how exactly? Not surprisingly, there is a debate on this important point between two Amoraim at the end of 6b, and it will engage us well into 7. Rav Nachman takes the bolder position. He says that corpse contamination is permitted for public ritual. Rav Sheshit hedges and says that Tumata made corpse contamination is superseded, dichuya, for public ritual. Itmar, Tumatamit, Rav Nachman Amar, Hutra Hibatsibur, Rav Sheshitamar, Dichuya Hibatsibur. What's the practical difference, you might ask? Good, because Gemara also wants to know. Everyone agrees that if you have available some priests who are impure and some who are pure, 
that only the pure should handle the ritual. Where they differ is in the situation that only impure priests are on hand. Rav Sheshit would see if pure priests can be summoned from another place in time, whereas Rav Nachman holds that the question of impurity is simply cancelled or nullified in this case, and the ritual should proceed without delay. Now, we come to page 7, where this Amoraic debate is connected to earlier traditions of the Tanaim. One critical aside. When the Talmud says, Amar Rav Sheshit, Rav Sheshit says, we shouldn't assume that this is a transcript of his actual words. Rather, the Stam, or anonymous editor of this Talmud, is citing earlier materials that support what we do know in the name of Rav Sheshit. Okay, at the top of 7a, we have a fascinating Braita, or Tanaitic tradition, known to the Bavali. If a Kohen is mid-service, standing at the altar and offering the Omer, which was a public sacrifice, and something goes wrong, perhaps an impure object falls on it, he is supposed to tell his attendants and have them bring a replacement. But if no replacement is available, and he's looking at his impure barley, they tell him, be smart and shut up. Just keep working. Here's their words. Titania, haya omed, umakriv minchata omer, benitmet biyado, omer, umeviim acheretachtecha, veim en sham elahi omrimbo, heve pikeach ushtok. Be smart and shut up. Heve pikeach ushtok. Now, if you are Rav Nachman, and you hold that the whole concept of impurity is nullified when it comes to public ritual, why should the priest ever seek a replacement part? This bright doesn't seem to agree that Tuma is a non-issue. It seems to agree with Rav Sheshit that, well, it suspended the impurity, but if you can get the pure, then you should try for that. But Rav Nachman has an answer. He says that this particular sacrifice, the Omer mentioned in the Brita, is going to be eaten by the priest. It has shirayim la'achila, leftovers for eating. And thus, it is worth taking the extra step to keep the food pure. However, the Stam is not done testing Rav Nachman. Now it brings out the heavy guns, metive, a challenge from a Mishnah, or in this case a Tosefta from Tractate Menacho, Chapter 3. Sacrifices of cows, of rams, and sheep have the same instruction. If something goes wrong and a replacement is at hand, the priest can ask for a switch. But if not, they tell him to be smart and shut up. Once again, Rav Nachman's position seems shaky. Once again, however, he has his defense. These sacrifices mentioned by the Tosefta are either public but not at a fixed time, as in the case of a sacrifice brought to repair for an avodazar of a foreign worship, or they are at a fixed time, but are being brought by an individual, as in the case of Aaron, the high priest, who first brings sacrifice for his family, or they are public and are at a fixed time, but they are edible, as in the case of the Omer. And in all such cases, Rav Nachman's leniency doesn't apply, but his principle remains intact. Another objection to Rav Nachman, this one from a Mishnaic tradition cited in five different locations. This one refers to blood that becomes impure in the middle of a service. 
If the Kohen Gadol mistake, or I'm sorry, if the Kohen mistakenly uses the blood anyway, sprinkling it on the altar, the ritual works. But if he intentionally, bemazed, ignores the situation of impurity, then his offering is not acceptable. Lo But this tradition implies that impurity is not completely nullified in public sacrifice, and it is therefore a problem for Rav Nachman, who had said, He gets out of this challenge too, however. That tradition about the blood refers to an individual offering, he says, not to a public offering, and therefore Rav Nachman's leniency would not apply. But in principle, his leniency is still there. Before leaving this discussion, let's stop to think about its significance for our worship. We, too, are prone to make mistakes in our worship, perhaps by stumbling over a word in prayer or leaving out a word altogether. If we make a mistake as an individual, maybe saying the wrong version of the Amidah, maybe for Shabbat instead of the daily or the reverse, we leave out Yala V'yavo for the new moon, then we should go back. But what if we make a mistake in public? Should we be even more scrupulous to go back and correct it? After all, we're demonstrating for the community how prayer is supposed to be done. Or, on the other hand, should we be sensitive to the needs of the congregation who have a limited attention span and not make them sit through an extra service? Moreover, shouldn't we also be concerned about the humiliation of the prayer leader who's made a mistake, which will now be publicly noticed and corrected? Different situations will call for different resolutions. But this ancient debate that we've learned today can add nuance to our discussion. While Rav Nachman takes quite a bit of criticism for his bold position that even an imperfect public service should be considered to be fully acceptable, he does not back down, and I admire his gumption. As someone who frequently leads public worship, I know that nothing will ever be perfect, and yet Rav Nachman teaches us that God wants even our imperfect public prayers. The rest of 7a and then 7b, um, our focus switches to the ritual headgear of the high priest, a gold diadem called the tzitz, which was inscribed with the words Kodesh Ladonai, sacred for the Lord. The Torah says that this object lifted the sin of sacrifice, nasa avon hakorbanot, hakodeshim, I'm sorry. But what sin precisely? The stam of our Talmud, the editor, suggests that it was a sin of bringing impure public offerings, so that seats canceled impurity in public offerings. If so, then Rav Sheshit now is on the defensive. This bright it would support Rav Nachman's idea that impurity has been fully nullified, apparently through the mechanism of the seats of the gold diadem. This debate between Rav Nachman and Rav Sheshit is now attached to an earlier controversy of Tanaim about the seats. Rabbi Shimon, Atana, held that the tzitz had ritual power, whether or not it was being worn by the priest. It was sort of a magical device. After all, on Yom Kippur, the tzitz was not worn, and yet the sins were still lifted. Rabbi Yehuda, another Tana, held that the tzitz worked only when it was on the priest's head. And Yom Kippur, he says, is irrelevant, because impurity is already nullified for public rituals. 
it would seem that Rabbi Shimon's position is thus the basis of Rav Sheshit in our debate. Impurity is suspended but not nullified for public rituals. Whereas Rabbi Yehuda's position supports the later claim of Rav Nachman, that the power of public ritual is so great that impurity is nullified. The Gemara will go on and complicate the debate a bit more, but I'm going to skip to its conclusion, which again has contemporary significance. The Torah says that the tzitz should be on the priest's head tamid, which means always. But this is impossible. Does he not sleep, wash, or poop? He can't always wear the tzitz. No, tamid must mean that when wearing the tzitz, the coin must always be aware, must be tamid, that the divine name is on his head. And if this is true of the tzitz, which has the divine name only once, how much more so is this the case with tefillin, which have many instances of the divine name on each parchment? Rav Huna reminds those of us who wear tefillin never to take this mitzvah lightly, but rather to feel the privilege and responsibility of carrying the divine name on our person. While you might think that the high priest had a level of sanctity that is no longer available to us today, we conclude page 7 with the great awareness that those who wear tefillin are in some ways even superior to the high priest in the temple. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the opening and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epic Horus album One Bead, available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.